Just like in the case of lunch being free, no one goes around proclaiming, hey, you know, my my intentions are pure as the driven snow, and therefore the outcomes that I'm seeking are going to obtain. No one no one explicitly claims this. Yet nonetheless, people, uh, you know, support policies, uh, and they do so on the basis of the purity of the intentions, let us say. Welcome to Acted Line, a podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Common economic perceptions pervade our discourse on policy. Dr. Caleb Fuller's latest book, No Free Lunch, Six Economic Lies You've Been Taught and Probably Believe, sets out to dispel these myths. Acton's President Emeritus, Father Robert Sirico, said of the book, Anyone who wants a well-rounded education will not want to be without the knowledge this book contains. In this episode, Noah Gould, Acton's alumni and student programs manager, sits down with Dr. Fuller to discuss the book and some of the most pervasive examples of economic myths. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Well, I'm here today with Dr. Caleb Fuller, who is a associate professor of economics at Grove City College, and we're here to talk about his recent book, No Free Lunch, Six Economic Lies You've Been Taught and Probably Believe. Welcome to Acton Line. Thank you for having me, Noah. It's great to be here. So just to start it off, tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book. Yeah, I would say there were sort of two related reasons why I wrote this book. The first is that I wanted to uh, think about the fallacies that my very, very bright, very gifted students at, at Grove City College might bring with them into my Econ 101 course. And um, after having taught that course for several semesters, several years at this point, I feel as if I have a pretty good grasp of several of the more prominent, you know, prevailing economic errors or fallacies they might bring with them. And so I distilled those down into six of the more common ones in this book. And uh, using uh, the opportunity cost framework that I'm sure we'll touch on here, I uh, talk about why these are errors in in reasoning from an economic perspective. So that was sort of the first reason. And I think the second reason is that I really wanted this book to be kind of my own <clears throat> love letter to Econ 101, which if you've followed the news at all recently around Econ 101, Econ 101 is kind of under fire at the moment. And there's a lot of people <clears throat> criticizing Econ 101 for you know, telling people misleading stories about how the world works. And um, I actually disagree with those critics. Um, a lot of critics of Ecom 101 sort of think that the way we should approach Ecom 101 is to, uh, the same way that we might approach like a physics 101, where we sort of have to lie to the students about, you know, and this is how a Newtonian world works, and then we get into general relativity and these sorts of things later. And likewise, they want to um, treat economics that way, that, well, we sort of <clears throat> dumb things down and these things we're telling you in Econ 101 aren't really true. And then, you know, we'll, we'll sort of pull the, the wool from 
I guess, from off of your eyes later when we when we reveal to you how, how the world really works. And I, I really disagree with those critics of Ecom 101. I think that what comes after Ecom 101 is really just <clears throat> um, sort of filling in the picture a little bit more, but that Econ 101, as it at least was taught historically in the United States, is, you know, fundamentally a correct way of seeing the world. And it's what, you know, made me fall in love with economics originally. It's what ultimately uh, made me pursue a career in communicating economics. And so I wanted to communicate some of that love, some of that energy in this book as well. And not only are these fallacies that, you know, a freshman in college might come in thinking, but these are fallacies that have persisted over a large amount of time. We just see them crop up over and over and over. And your book focuses on six specific fallacies that, that you highlight. What's one uh, fallacy that you think is especially uh, pervasive and sticky? Yeah, well, I mean, we could just go with the the title of my book. I titled my book, No Free Lunch. And so in chapter two, I examined the fallacy that lunch is free. And of course, that's a fallacy or a misunderstanding that no one goes around explicitly claiming or proclaiming, right? But a lot of people's um, uh, beliefs and actions and the policies they support belie the notion that they actually do believe that lunch is free or that something can be had for nothing. In other words, um, that you can get one thing without giving up something else that you that you value. And so that's what I examine in chapter two. And the way that I examine this in chapter two is to look at uh, a policy that is more or less universally um, rejected by economists, but that the man on the street oftentimes tends to support, and it's evidence of free lunch thinking on their on their part, and that is rent control. So under rent control, uh, it's a public policy that stipulates the prices that landlords can charge for their housing. It caps those so they can't go above some you know, arbitrarily stipulated threshold. And this generates a whole lot of uh, what economists would call unintended consequences. And when we think through those unintended consequences, it demonstrates just why there isn't any free lunch under this sort of policy. So to give you just you know one, one example of this, um, what the rent control policy does is it creates a shortage. Shortage is a fancy sounding econ word, but all it means is that at, at an existing price, there are more people who would like to buy something than there are people willing to sell it. And that shortage, in turn, um, allows landlords to be much more choosy in who they allow into their apartment complexes. So you see discrimination cropping up among landlords. And so whether that discrimination occurs on the basis of race or sex or religious creed or some other characteristic <clears throat> that the landlord cares about, you're going to see that cropping up. And as I discuss in my book, a very colorful instance of this comes from the Swedish housing market. When, when rent control was imposed there, Sven Reidenfeldt shows that couples with children had a much more difficult time finding housing than they had prior to the rent control being imposed. And the reason is just because if you can choose between a couple that has a child versus a childless couple, you'd prefer to go with the childless couple because uh, you know, children are messy, they're going to throw spaghetti on the wall, they're going to write on the wall with crayons and so forth. And so you'd like to pass over them in favor of lower maintenance uh, cost folks that, that are either single or maybe don't have, have any kids. And so you see this discrimination that arises under rent control. And so there's no free lunch for those that are discriminated against, which in this particular case was was couples with children. And I like how you know these, these things keep popping up and there's always some sort of caveat of, oh, this time it's different. We can justify it. But kind of the logic that you're walking through really is universal in the fact of, okay, there are always going to be some sort of costs and we have to think about uh, what those costs are. 
Um, another policy that you talk about um, is intentions guarantee outcomes. That's one that uh, is close to our hearts here at Acton with our uh, one of our catchphrases is connecting good intentions with sound economics. And this is something that I think is especially prevalent. You see it in the poverty space, you know, I'm, I'm people saying, oh, I'm just trying to help. This is, and of course, they are often trying to help. What, what's an example that you see uh, of this fallacy? Yeah, well, it's it's certainly the case that all of the fallacies that I discuss in this book, I think of them as being very tightly linked to one another. And one reason I, I think that is because each one of these um, fails to grapple with what economists call opportunity cost, what it is that we are giving up whenever we take an action. And so a cost in economic terms is just a foregone benefit. Okay, so if you can kind of keep that idea in the front of your mind when you're reading my book, that's sort of the the central key, the central theme that I'm trying to, to get across. And so you asked about intentions uh, guaranteeing outcomes. And of course, just like in the case of lunch being free, no one goes around proclaiming, hey, you know, my, my intentions are pure as the driven snow and therefore the outcomes that I'm seeking are going to obtain. No one, no one explicitly claims this. Yet nonetheless, people, uh, you know, support policies uh, and they do so on the basis of the, um, the purity of the intentions, let us say. Okay, so in the example that I was just talking about with, <clears throat> with rent control, surely it was not the intention of politicians in Sweden who are supporting rent control to foster increased discrimination against couples with children, right? And nonetheless, that was the outcome. And so in chapter three, what I do is I go through some other instances of this, and there are several very, very colorful examples. Um, perhaps one of the most famous to economists' mind is something called the Cobra effect. So the story here is that in the early 20th century, <clears throat> the British had uh, colonized India. They had been largely successful in their attempt to subdue the Indian subcontinent there, but they still faced a really strong pocket of very lethal resistance, and that was from the native cobra population. So you can imagine British redcoats walking through the streets, probably jumping very unceremoniously in, you know, in, in contradiction to their all their life, lifelong training probably whenever they came across a, a, a cobra. And so finally, the British governor there decided to, to do something about it, and um, his goal was to eliminate or at least to significantly reduce the cobra population. And so he implemented a bounty on cobra tails. And our sources suggest that this bounty was about one cent per tail, which uh, it turns out was a pretty nice payday for certain natives because <clears throat> natives in the area um, began to set up cobra farms. And so they would begin breeding cobras in, in economic <clears throat> sort of jargon, what this policy had done is it had increased the costs or the foregone benefits of not becoming a cobra breeder. So you can imagine some people that are engaged in other, uh, perhaps more productive occupations, jumping in off the sidelines to become someone who's now, for a living, raising and breeding snakes in order to uh, se sever their tails and uh, turn those in for payment. And so <clears throat> this goes on for a while. And of course, uh, eventually the uh, British are seeing these tailless cobras slithering through the city, and it's, that, it's at that point that they know something is clearly up here. And uh, in response to this, they simply disbanded the bounty program. And so you can think about these snakes as almost having been like a financial instrument, but now that financial instrument is worthless. And so the natives disbanded their breeding programs, released their now worthless snakes back into the wild, and the snake population there in Delhi ballooned. 
Uh, so this is why economists call this the Cobra effect, because while, <clears throat> while there are many instances of regulations that fail to achieve the stated goal, the stated outcome, okay, so that would be an example of intentions failing to guarantee the outcome. What's kind of unique about the Cobra effect is that not all regulations positively promote the thing that the regulation is meant to curtail or, you know, vice versa, curtail the thing that it was meant to, to promote, right? So the Cobra effect is a particularly perverse manifestation of how government uh, regulation can uh, backfire. And, you know, one area that we see especially uh, a lot of these economic fallacies, of course, is the political arena and rhetoric surrounding different things. Uh, one kind of bipartisan agreement that we see is on trade and viewing kind of trade as a zero-sum game. You see that kind of on the right and the left through President Trump and now President Biden. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, your writing on you know, trade is war and that being an economic fallacy? You know, why is that so kind of accepted now and, and how can we combat that? Sure. So somebody in the Q&A today after I gave my talk asked what is the most commonly held fallacy among people that I encounter, including, you know, um, people that are just beginning to <clears throat> explore economics. And I think it probably is this fallacy that exchange is not mutually beneficial when it is voluntary. Or to put it another way, that that is the error, right? Exchange is, to say the positive thing, to say the thing that is correct, exchange benefits both parties when both parties enter into that exchange on a voluntary and mutual basis. And so the error is to think that an exchange relationship is zero sum, namely that one party has to lose in order for the other party to to gain from this interaction. And what's interesting is that this particular um, idea is probably where you see the greatest divergence between what economists have said and what maybe, say, the man on the street would say or what the conventional wisdom would suggest. Um, <clears throat> economists for 250, 300 years have been attempting to emphasize that mutually, um, or sorry, uh, voluntary exchange is mutually beneficial, and that both parties are going to walk, are going to enter into an exchange only if they anticipate gaining from it. And so that's true at, at our own individual levels, and I think that's where it's easiest to see. So, in order to convince yourself of this, you could just imagine, you know, what would my life be like? If I did not engage in any sort of exchange relationships with people, I mean, you, maybe you could still talk to people. Let's allow that for our little thought experiment, okay? But you couldn't engage in anything that an economist would call exchange, where I give you one thing that is considered valuable, and in return, I receive something else that's considered valuable. And economists would refer to this as a situation of autarky or complete self-sufficiency. And the upshot for us is that it would imply that you have to produce every last item that you wish to consume. And so, you know, just a couple of moments of, of quick reflection on your own condition under such circumstances would reveal, I think, just how impoverished you would end up being under circumstances like that. Okay, you know, um, you would be lucky to have maybe one one pair of clothes that you've managed to sort of stitch together, and maybe it's like the, the fig leaves from the book of Genesis or something like that. Um, your diet... <clears throat> would be ex extremely limited. It would not include the large diversity of, of foods and beverages that the typical person, even in a very underdeveloped country, consumes now. Um, you probably would not be educated. You probably would not be literate, okay? Because remember, you would have had to have exchanged with someone in order to purchase reading material or, you know, materials teaching you how to read and so forth. 
Um, so your life would be, to kind of channel the, the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes, it would be nasty, brutish, and short. And so <clears throat> um, when we engage in specialization and subsequent exchange, we can kind of break out of that uh, low standard of living that characterizes that, that sort of state of nature situation. And the fundamental argument that economists have been making, again, for 250 to 300 years is that nothing fundamental about that argument changes <clears throat> when we take two people who are exchanging across a political boundary. So when I'm exchanging with someone in China, you know, we're only doing so because we both anticipate being made better off. And of course, it's true that, you know, when <clears throat> a country opens its borders to international trade, that certain industries are disrupted, that's sort of the easy to see thing, the thing that's visible. But what an economist wants you to focus on is um, all the things that we receive as a result of this relationship. And then secondly, where the labor and capital then get reallocated to, you know, when someone loses their job due to international trade, in the absence of labor market interventions, they end up working in some other sector of the, the economy. We have some good empirical evidence on what happens to people's standards of living when they actually are cut off from trade. My favorite example, and one I use in the book in uh, chapter five, comes from the mid-20th century. There was a family in Russia called the Lykov family. And the early 30s, they fleed their home of Moscow due to a religious persecution of the Eastern Orthodox. And they ended up settling in uh, Siberia. There were six of them. And they lived there for about the next 40 years. And during that 40-year period, they didn't have any contact with any other human beings besides the six of them. So there could still be a little bit of exchange relationships, but just on a very, very tiny scale with inside of a family. Um, and so when uh, a team of uh, geologists that were hunting for minerals finally uh, found them by way of helicopter in the mid-1970s, they found a family where actually two of them had tragically passed away. The others were you know, living right on the brink of, of subsistence. Had their standard of living fallen any further, they, they would have died. They had, of course, long worn out their original clothes and were you know, patching things together from, from the wilderness there. Their annual diet consisted of something like three to four different foods total across an entire year. And they were very, very sick. Okay, So that sort of picture um, is one that you can sort of translate onto a national scale. You know, if the United States became hermetically sealed and there was no exchange anymore, of course, we wouldn't be as poor as the Lykovs. But that's simply because there's 320 million of us and there can still be specialization and exchange um, with, amongst us. But we would be relatively poor than if we opened our, our borders or sorry, not, not open our borders necessarily. right, But if we open trade to. Uh, uh, producers in, in other countries. So again, I mean, I think thought experiments, which um, like these can help us to you know, see, see clearly the nature of, of trade and just ask yourself, you know, hey, would my family have been better off if my dad had sort of acted as a dictator and said, no exchange except for, you know, within inside the, the, the Noah Gould household? <laughs> so, you know, one thing that you see people argue is sure, it's all, you know, it's all well and good to have trade and exchange between people in the abstract. But when you look at particular circumstances, there's often, you know, unequal power dynamics is one thing you hear often. Or, you know, you think of the the person on uh, the, the desert island or even the tourist who doesn't have as much information as the local. And so some folks say, okay, how can there be uh, kind of equal footing here for trade? I'm curious what your response to that would be. And that, that might get us into... Uh, your sixth fallacy as well. The economic argument that 
uh, voluntary exchanges mutually beneficial, it actually does not hinge on, it's not contingent on there being so-called equal power dynamics. All that it hinges on is that neither party is bringing force or the threat of force, the threat of violence to the negotiations. In other words, both parties are <clears throat> free to retain ownership of their property and walk away from this exchange or alternatively to hand over a title to the property they currently own in exchange for something that the other party is, is handing to them. So people are only going to engage in that sort of interaction with one another if they anticipate if they anticipate gain from doing so. And so, you know, a, a classic objection that people have <clears throat> is to point to, say, sweatshop conditions. And here I'm thinking not of cases of involuntary servitude. Okay, those are clearly beyond the scope of what I'm talking about and are clearly immoral when someone is forced to work against their will. But what I have in mind is when someone is working in um, – a factory for long hours, for low pay, and their standard of living is generally poor compared to their Western counterparts. That's what I mean when I say sweatshop. <clears throat> and even in those sorts of circumstances, what the economists would say is those people are electing to engage in that activity because it beats whatever their relative alternative is. And so whenever you see someone engaging in an exchange that you're tempted to kind of shout exploitation about, you should always check yourself by saying, what is this person's relevant alternative? And what you'll typically find is that the relative alternative must be much worse than, than yours is. You know, why would you or I sitting here in this comfortable air-conditioned studio, why would we not work for $2 a day in dangerous non-air-conditioned kind of uh, facilities? It's because our relevant alternatives are something much, much better. But for people that are in the underdeveloped world, oftentimes their best alternative is working in that sort of a context. And um, there's some great empirical work that's been done by economists like Ben Powell and, and a co-author, J.R. Clark. And what they show is that um, these sort of uh, manufacturing contexts often offer higher wages than what the relevant alternatives would be for people in underdeveloped contexts, such as that they could find in you know an ag agricultural setting or um, – in uh, small local production type settings, like a roadside stand, okay? Um, not only are wages usually higher, but working conditions are actually oftentimes safer. You're much less likely to, say, lose a limb working in a manufacturing context than you are working on the farm in an underdeveloped context. And so that's why it is that we see people working in these places uh, that we would tend to condemn as being, you know, um, uh, much worse, let's say, than, than our relative alternative. It's because for them, the reverse is true. It's it's better than their than their relative alternative. They ask, actually anticipate gaining from it. And so, when it comes to the the policy discussion, there, the the really relevant question is, you know, how can we improve these people's relevant alternatives? Okay, that that's the that's the real question that people should be asking. And of course, there's a host of things that have been been put forward uh, to to provide an answer to that question. And going back to your point on free trade. That's going to be a part of increasing people's alternatives as well, right? Is giving them opportunities beyond the country or context that they find themselves, and so that that's a really interesting tie-in there. Yes, absolutely. I mean, free trade um, increases the size and scope of the market, and probably the most famous line out of Adam Smith's *The Wealth of Nations*: "He says the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market." And so all that means is that it doesn't make sense to specialize in something for which a market does not exist. But when you open up your country to international markets, that allows for a greater degree of specialization because the market has become, has become bigger.
So let's talk a little bit about um, the uh, sixth fallacy you bring up, which is markets are unregulated. This is something that I think is most people's default is that, you know, we think of the Wild West or we think of uh, there's kind of just mythology around this as well. But tell us a little bit about why um, you see markets are unregulated as a fallacy. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think unlike, say, the error that I examine in Chapter 2, which is that lunch is free, or unlike the error that I look at in Chapter 3, intentions guarantee outcomes, here's an error, the idea that markets are unregulated, that lots of people hold to and are, are willing to actually defend. Okay, they will, you often hear people say, th- you know, use phrases like wildcat capitalism. You use the expression wild, wild west. Okay. And so this chapter is, in some sense, probably the most subtle chapter in the book. And I think that this is the chapter that, you know, a professional economist would probably find the most of interest to them and might even be able to refine some of their own concepts in this chapter. Um, but I actually see this as very fundamental because if free markets are not regulated, then economics doesn't really have much of a subject matter to study in the first place. Okay, so what, so what I mean by this is that um, people use the word regulation in a far too narrow sense. They usually equate it simply with government regulation. But regulation is just a set of penalties and or rewards associated with alternative courses of action. And so free markets are institutional settings that contain an inherent degree of regulation as I've defined it here. And I think I can best illustrate this by giving a couple of examples from this this chapter. Um, Free markets, for example, regulate the temptation by producers to engage in fraudulent exchange, to defraud their consumers. Think about going to your favorite restaurant for a moment. It's a, it's a lobster restaurant, a, sea, a seafood place, and you order your favorite lobster, and an hour later, the waiter reappears with a nice plate of monkfish, so-called poor man's lobster. Meanwhile, in the interim period, he went to a local grocer and you know picked up this cheap substitute, then he plops down the bill, and you owe $100 for your, your fancy lobster dinner. So abstracting sort of from other costs of labor and keeping the lights on, you know, we could say that he made $90 of pure profit just on you in that transaction. And yet, even as I, as we sit here and I kind of describe this to you, I mean, I can see you're sort of smiling because that's such a ridiculous sort of scenario. I mean, how often do you actually hear a real world story like that playing out? And so you might think, well, why is it that we don't um, see these sorts of um, cost-cutting maneuvers taking place more often? given that the producer should be able to pocket all this additional money by, by behaving this way, you know, is it because the legal system is standing by ready to come to your aid? Is it because you know, you're going to walk out of there and say, I'm going to get my lawyer here who's on speed dial, and I'm going to sue this restaurant? And of course, the answer to that is no. The costs of you engaging with the legal system there are clearly larger than the benefits. You, know, you could imagine spending weeks in court where you're holding up pictures of monkfish to the, to the judge, right? Say, this is what he brought me, but this is what a lobster looks like, right? You're taking time off work, and so you're foregoing wages and so forth, okay? And then all for what? At the end of the day, he'll either you know, order the restaurant to provide you with, with a lobster dinner, or he'll order you know, the, the lobster, or the, sorry, the, the restaurant pay you damages, okay? And so clearly, you, you know, you're not going to uh, avail yourself of the legal system and the restaurant knows this just as well as you and I know this. And so there's got to be something else that is constraining, or we could use that word regulating, 
regulating the restaurant owner's behavior. And of course, it's true that in many contexts, um, the restaurant owner might simply be regulated by his own conscience, right? He's a good guy. He knows this is wrong to defraud you in this way. But we all know that there are people in the world that aren't like that. And so one of the things that can regulate them is simply the fact that by behaving the way that I've described, they're going to throw away your future business. You're never going to go to that that uh, store again, right? Or that, that, that establishment. And your future business is a benefit to them. And so in other words, it is actually costly. They would incur an opportunity cost by behaving the way that I have, that I've described. Um, <clears throat> so th- so they, are, they are regulated uh, to the degree that they value future interactions with you that they anticipate would be, you know, beneficial to them. All right. So that is one, one small way that regulation occurs in free markets. And I think one of the reasons why it's difficult to see this is because it really is something that's kind of happening in the background. It is invisible. We take these sorts of mundane interactions for granted when we, when we really shouldn't. You know, another example, though, is that markets regulate the temptation to behave in um, a manner that uh, would be sort of like racially prejudiced. So a great example of this comes from a paper written by Armin Auschen and Ruben Kessel in the 1960s that I make use of in this, this final chapter. And in this paper, they're motivated by a simple observation about the world, which is that during the mid-20th century in the United States, Jewish men worked in different industries at dramatically different rates. Okay, so in other words, racial representation was not equal across industries. And uh, Keschel, uh, sorry, Kessel and Alshin not- notice this fact, and they want to bring economic theory to, to explain it. What I do in this chapter is to use their findings and their logic to explain how markets are regulating the impulse to engage in a prejudicial way with, with someone's employees or prospective employees. So um, <clears throat> a surprising answer to why you see this disparity is that in certain industries, government caps the profits that producers can earn. And historically, uh, government has done this in industries like insurance, utilities, and finance. And why this matters is that you can imagine the following sort of situation where there's an employer who has a job that's open for $50,000, let's say, a year. And let's say he's got two applicants for this job, one of whom is um, not a Jewish person. And uh, this prospective employee would contribute $55,000 in revenue. And then he's faced with a... um, a Jewish applicant who would contribute, let's say, $60,000 of revenue because this, this person's a little bit more skilled than his non-Jewish counterpart, okay? Well, let's suppose also that our employer in this particular case is racially prejudiced for whatever reason against having a Jewish employee. And so in a free market, of course, it's true that he could um, elect to go with a non-Jewish person, but he would also be shooting himself in the foot to the tune of $5,000 a year. And so not only would he have to ask himself, you know, is... Is that how much I value my prejudice? Do I value it at $5,000 or more? But he would also have to face the threat that uh, there's an employer down the street who says, well, you know, I I don't care what skin color you have, right? I don't care what your religious creed is. I'm going to hire the best person. And in so doing, he might, you know, drive our our more bigoted employer out of of business. So that's what happens in – that's what's sort of continuously happening in a free uh, market – but now imagine that the government comes along and caps the profits that a producer can earn. So in our example, that would be like the government coming along and confiscating that 5000 additional dollars that an employer would profit from hiring the Jewish man. And so what this does is it takes away the incentive for the bigoted employer to, to sort of swallow his, his prejudice, to keep it sort of bound up in his heart instead of actually acting out on it. 
And and now we can see him, you know, hiring the person that he prefers for whatever his prejudicial reasons are, as opposed to going with the the better worker in this case. And so uh, the reason, again, that I utilize it in this chapter is to say that uh, in, in free markets, again, you it's hard to see, right? It's a little bit invisible, but in the background, there is this uh, regulation of people's you know, maybe some people have a natural proclivity to engage prejudice, prejudicially with their employees. So that's an example of a, you know, regulation in this, a rule that actually deregulated or um, allowed more room for prejudice. And it's interesting that you, in some ways you want a system that allows for the best in humanity, but also limits or provides a check. And in this way, you're defining regulations as some sort of constraint and there are constraints that are without and some constraints that are within. It seems like we need a combination of this in, in a really a vibrant society on the kind of worst of human action. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, David Hume was famous for saying that we want, we want a system that allows bad men to do least harm. And, you know, I think sometimes that quote has been misused by people that, you know, Hume is assuming something about human anthropology that maybe he shouldn't assume. Is he assuming that everyone's a scoundrel, everyone's a knave? And the the answer is no, Hume wasn't necessarily. But what he's saying is, you know, we, we want to recognize the, the human uh, capacity for this. And, you know, we have lots of empirical evidence that people can behave in these ways. And so we want a system that sort of, you know, cur- curtails that proclivity as opposed to a system that, you know, allows for the great men to do great things, right? And how would you kind of distinguish in your thought of uh, between, on the one hand, you have regulations, you know, kind of deciding winners and losers or or um, kind of making rules in the marketplace, but then you also have rules of the game that kind of allow room for people to have free exchange within. What? How would you distinguish between those two types? Or maybe is there not a... No, no certainly all, all market exchange takes place within rules of the game, whether those rules of the game are informal norms, such as something like, you know, shaking people's hand when you meet them. Those sorts of rules tend to emerge spontaneously without any sort of central direction or formal rules of the game that are promulgated by some central authority, usually a government. So that could be something like a constitution or, or regulation. And so I guess I would, I would draw a distinction between <clears throat> those rules that um, protect people's natural right to private property and those that curtail their ability to use private property in the ways that, that they see fit. And for a host of reasons, you know, if you have the first kind of rules that allow people to be secure in their, in their private property, we tend to, you know, move towards a world where there's more human flourishing and we have a world where people's use of private property is curtailed. Uh, you know, flourishing is also curtailed to some extent. So to wrap up, if you were to leave, you know, people with a question or moving forward, how can people kind of interrogate these fallacies that they uh, kind of encounter in their day-to-day lives? Yeah, I think that... Economics is actually pretty simple when you strip it all down, but that people kind of overcomplicate it. And so there's just kind of a series of questions that you can ask yourself whenever you hear economic claims. You know, one is, uh, what are we giving up in order to accomplish this goal? Or, you know, in other words, what is the cost or what are the foregone benefits of achieving X, Y, or Z? So, you know, for example, in the um, push that we're seeing in the drive that we're seeing for free college education, Right. Of course, it's not free in the sense that um, 
we're sacrificing the attainment of other goals that many of us in society would value when we provide something like free free college, okay? So the, the resources that go into the buildings, the, the faculty that teach there and so on, um, the students that are tied up taking classes for however many years instead of doing what, right? And so you want to ask yourself, what could these resources have done had they not been uh, <clears throat> coerced or compelled into a particular line of production? So that's one question you always want to ask yourself. You always want to ask yourself, you know, what is the relevant alternative for someone in this situation? Uh, or a kind of related question as compared to what would be another kind of question that you want to ask yourself. Um, so for going back to our example of the sweatshop, say, okay, yeah, their working conditions are bad. A good follow-up question to ask would be as compared to what? As compared to the options that you and I who are sitting in this studio have? Yes, absolutely. As compared to the options that someone in the underdeveloped world has? Actually, no. This is this is their best, this is their best option. Um, again, another question you could ask is, you know, this this sounds good. But will X policy actually achieve Y stated outcome or Y stated goal? Great. So we've been talking about the book, uh, No Free Lunch, Six Economic Lies You've Been Taught and Probably Believe, available wherever quality books on economic fallacies are sold. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.